is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Remember when you were told taking aspirin could help protect against a heart attack or stroke? We've been hearing that for years. Doctors even recommended people in their 60s start taking baby aspirin every day. Now that's changed, and it might be a bit confusing. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force no longer recommends daily aspirin to prevent a first heart attack or stroke among people 60 and older. So we go in-depth to try to make sense of this big change. Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter could further shrink the number of people and businesses that control society's major forms of communication. And a new report says there were a record number of anti-Semitic incidents across the U.S. last year. A top Russian official brings up nuclear war again. We'll look into whether he's serious or bluffing. We talk with a human rights activist in Kiev who's monitoring humanitarian corridors to find out if Russia is allowing safe travel for aid workers and civilians. More COVID medications supposed to head to more pharmacies. Is that going to meet the demand? And Harvard reckoning with its past ties to slavery. We'll tell you what the university is doing. But we start with aspirin. With us is Dr. Propdeep Sethi, who's a cardiologist at St. Bernardine Medical Center in San Bernardino. Uh, doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, aspirin, daily aspirin, low-dose aspirin, lots of people have been taking it for years. Why shouldn't they continue? Well, I think uh, it's important to first clarify the patients that the UPSTF is referring to. This is people over 60 that have no prior history of heart attacks or strokes. So mainly people who we were recommending for primary prevention. And I think the data is pretty clear that the harm and benefit ratio is at best equal, and there may be a signal for a little bit more harm with GI bleeding and other forms of bleed. So they're finally recommending against it for people who've never had a heart attack or stroke above the age of 60. Okay, so this is for people who may be doing it on their own without talking to their doctors. What about people who are already taking it and, and have had like a cardiac event before and then now they're on the aspirin? Yeah, that's a completely different subgroup. So for them, it's what we refer to as secondary prevention. They should only stop aspirin after consultation with their doctor, preferably their cardiologist. I, I was going to ask, uh, because in reading what uh, the recommendation was, they seem to be making a point that even for those 60 and over, if they are currently taking aspirin, they shouldn't just stop? They should not, not without consulting their, their physicians. Okay, so 60 and older, don't start unless you're on it, then don't stop without talking to your doctor. If you've had a cardiac event and you're taking it, then keep going because that's secondary prevention. What if you are deemed to be at risk uh, maybe higher than the normal population. Is that also a doctor kind of consultation thing? Exactly. Yeah, especially if you're younger. So for patients who are 40 to 59 and you have multiple cardiac risk factors such as elevated cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, for those patients, they should really just have a discussion with their physician and better characterize their risk and then make a you know a joint decision whether or not to start aspirin. Now, this uh, new recommendation, of course, is is strictly uh, as it regards aspirin taking and coronary events. But as I recall, throughout the years, a lot of uh, doctors were recommending aspirin because of other studies that suggested that aspirin use might also help certain kinds of cancer, like colon cancer. Is that still on the table or is that also now off the table? That's also now off the table. There was some suggestion that 
aspirin therapy reduce the incidence of colon cancer. But I think now with the preventative measures that we're taking with screening for colon cancer, with endoscopies and colonoscopies, uh, it is no longer recommended. There's still a higher signal for complications such as bleeding with daily aspirin use. What changed? Was it just we've had more time to, to study all this? Yes. So, the, you know, the initial data came from basically trying aspirin on people who had heart attacks, and it had such a robust reduction of, of recurrent events that it was thought that maybe we could use it as a preventative measure. But in population studies, that's never been demonstrated. And, you know, there are people who are going to ask, what are the odds that in, I don't know, two or three years, there'll be another big study that comes along and says, nope, we should all take aspirin. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, did we lose oh. you? I think we lost him. Well, we'll call him back if in a couple of years there's another study that says to take it. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll take two aspirins and call him in the morning. <laughs> Talk to Pravdeep Sethi, <laughs> cardiologist, St. Bernardine in San Bernardino. Right now, uh, Elon Musk's impending purchase of Twitter is another example of a billionaire gaining major control over an influential social or traditional media outlet. Mark Zuckerberg controls Facebook and Instagram. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and still has lots of power and pull at Amazon. How concerned should we all be over this trend? Nelson Granados is executive director of the Institute for Entertainment, Media, Sports and Culture at the Pepperdine Graziato Business School. Thanks for being with us, Nelson. So there was a time when people were concerned about, you know, a handful of big companies seemingly owning everything on the planet. Now it seems like a handful of people do. Yeah, well, so that that is uh, certainly one of the concerns, I think, that we should have, especially in the technology uh, realm. Um, It's a tough one because a lot of these businesses, they benefit from network externalities where the more people in the platform, the better the platform is for everyone. So it's just something just we, we have to deal with um, in these technology platform environments. Right, because what are we to do about it, right? Billionaires buy things because they're rich and that's what they do. And it used to be that uh, you own the newspapers, and some still do. We mentioned Jeff Bezos. But now you're going to own new media because that's what's out there now, and that's the world we live in. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a real challenge. I mean, I think, I think what we can uh, – what I'm a little bit hopeful for is that, uh, you know, people like Elon Musk and others, other individuals who have been very successful in business, uh, they they make decisions that are good for their businesses. So if you think about Elon Musk thinking that, saying that Twitter is a, is a, is a, is our virtual town square, like a massive virtual town square, uh, well, that business is only worthwhile if people are going to it. Uh, if there's uh, influencers that are going there to sort of uh, share their voice and their thoughts, and so if if it's uh, if it's um, unfriendly uh, or or um, uh, if if it if it, if it uh, drives away the influencers and the people who listen to them, then that's a problem for the business. So so my hope is that uh, Elon Musk and and others who are involved in decision-making in the company will actually do what's best to have a healthy um, uh, uh, town square where we all can, can share our voices in a, in a legal and, uh, and friendly way. Yeah, but Nelson, that whole idea of uh, the owner of the business, in this case perhaps uh, Elon Musk if he finishes buying uh, Twitter, 
that by but their main interest is going to be in protecting their their business and making it work and being user friendly doesn't that break down as you have less and less competition that that if there's a lot of competition then yes he has to make sure Twitter, for example, that, that Twitter is competitive and that uh, his customers, the people, want to flock to it. But there really is a scarcity of sites like Twitter. In fact, there really isn't another site quite like Twitter. So doesn't that analogy kind of break down that hope that he's going to do his business or, or work his business in a way that is going to only be beneficial to his customers? Yeah, I mean, you, you bring an excellent point, and economists like me would say the the closer you get to monopolistic power, the the less competition and the less efficient the market will be. So, indeed, that, that is a very big concern. Now, the, the tough thing here is what can you do about it? Uh, I mean, I, th- I think the only real hand who could do something is the hand of the regulators. Uh, but even then, I just it's it's hard for me to to envision what regulators could do because, I mean, you've seen it with other uh, platforms like Facebook where uh, despite some, um, you know, run-ins with, you know, trouble, both uh, media crisis and even legally, uh, they're still there and they're still very powerful and and they're still gathering more and more users. So that's a real tough one to, to, to tackle. Nelson Granados at Pepperdine. Coming up, we travel to Kiev to talk uh, to a human rights activist monitoring whether Russia's following rules when it comes to humanitarian corridors. And Harvard is coming to terms with its past connections to slavery and committing millions of dollars to try to right the wrong. Right now, a new report finds the number of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. reached a record high last year. Anti-Defamation League found more than 2,700, which include assaults, harassment, vandalism. Jeff Abrams is with us, regional director of the Anti-Defamation League Los Angeles. So is this a spike or have, have these been on the increase for years and years now? Mike, Charles, thank you so very much for having me here today. Unfortunately, this is not uh, something that is... Uh, a one-off event. This is the culmination and the continuation of a truly dramatic and epidemic rise of anti-Semitism, really, which has been ongoing since 2017. If you were simply to compare the statistics of today versus 2017, and just here in Los Angeles, we've seen an uptick of over 215% just in that time period. Why 2017? Well, that we saw, and again, at ADL, data drives policy for us. And we saw in that time period from 16 to 17, the most dramatic jump in the history of this survey, which is over 40 years. We saw a 34% rise this year. Back in 2016 to 17, it was a 58% rise. It coincided with the body politic, with the polarization, with ultimately what we saw in Charlottesville, if you'll recall, the tiki marches, Jews will not replace us. It's continued throughout COVID. It's been spread like wildfire with the assistance of social media. So this result for 2021 simply confirms the very troubling path we've been on. Are there any other incidents in, in 2021 that you can point to, any other things that, that helps fuel it even more than just the, the times we live in? 
Well, in, in, in particular in 2021, we'll all recall, we were locked away mostly inside our own homes in 2020. So our report did show a slight decrease in 2020, although online harassment was up 10% in 2020. In 2021, frankly, we were all back interacting with each other. And in particular, what we saw was a dramatic spike in May of last year, which coincided with the armed conflict between Israel and Hamas. This increase uh, in uh, anti-Semitism is not, though, confined to the U.S., is it? No, this is a, a uh, increase throughout the world. We at ADL also do our work internationally, not just in the Middle East, but in Latin America, in Europe. And in particular, we utilize what we call is our uh, um, Global 100. It is a set of seven questions that we ask in different countries on a regular basis. And what's so troubling, one of the most historic anti-Semitic tropes about having dual loyalty, our polling showed that around the world, 41% of people in other countries question whether Jews were more loyal to Israel than the country in which they currently live. So this is not isolated to the United States. So we have the numbers. Uh, what do we do with them? Well, at ADL, we firmly believe, again, that data drives policy. It's unmistakable that we've seen this uptick over the last several years. On a political level, there's a great deal that can and is being done in Washington and Sacramento and here locally as well. In particular, in D.C., the nonprofit security grant was passed, which will bring over $300 million to helping secure all houses of worship, not just Jewish. In Sacramento, there's currently a similar bill pending. This is what our elected officials can do. There are also people who are community leaders in Jewish, non-Jewish organizations on campus, all of whom who need to use their voice. Because what we have seen is with this dramatic uptick in all forms of anti-Semitic incident, for example, 28% in Los Angeles when it comes to harassment it is incumbent upon every person of goodwill to speak up when they see these things occur, because even if they do occur in the Jewish community, it's not where it ends. Just as racism in the African-American community is not only about the black community or anti-AIPI discrimination is not only about the Asian community, each of these forms of discrimination have a dramatic impact on all peoples. Jeff Abrams, Regional Director, Anti-Defamation League, Los Angeles. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia again raising the specter of nuclear war. Country's top diplomats warning those who underestimate the possibility, uh, saying the threat of the Ukraine war sparking a nuclear conflict is a serious one. Now, this came as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the U.S. wants to see Russia weakened. With us is Jim Walsh, international security and nuclear weapons policy expert, senior research associate at MIT's Security Studies Program. Jim, thanks for being with us. How serious, seriously should we take these comments from uh, the top diplomat of, of Russia that says, you know, uh, the possibility of nuclear conflict is, is real? Well, I, I think we have to take it seriously, but not because the Russians are saying it. 
Although if people are saying it, you should at least pay attention. It would be a bad situation if people were talking about nuclear war and you weren't paying attention. But I think the pattern so far has been to make sort of extravagant threats that were not seen as really credible threats. You'll remember they went on hot, what they called higher alert. The U.S. didn't respond to that. It stayed where it was. That was the right choice. So there's part of this is uh, signaling and, and sort of propaganda. But if you step back away from that and look at it from you know 30,000 feet, the fact of the matter is Russia has 45% of the world's nuclear weapons. They are in a major land war on the doorstep of NATO, which is protected by U.S. Uh, and other nuclear weapons. And if you were just looking at it from a plane, you'd say, wow, that's, that's not good. And you'd be right. The CIA director, Bill Burns, for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect, gave a talk at Georgia Tech, I guess, less than a week ago, and he was asked about it. And he said, I think what most experts think, which is the risk is real. Now, it doesn't mean it's likely, but the consequences for any use of nuclear weapons would be so large that even a, a increasing risk or a small risk would be bad. And here the sort of scenario is Putin gets himself twisted in some sort of situation where he is facing a massive defeat and feels like his future and Russia's future depends on what happens and he's put and he goes for it then. During you know, during the Cold War, it was US policy to go to nuclear first if we were losing a conventional battle. And so do I think that's gonna happen? No. But has everyone been surprised so far? Yes. So you got to be, you know, you got to pay attention here yeah. and take the warning. We do hope everyone understands, though, you know, people who have these arsenals that that this ends the world, right? Nobody wins a nuclear war. We all we all die. Well, we know you're right to say no one wins a nuclear war, but people obviously are able to tell themselves stories, right? About if they do this, something else will happen and it all ends well. And so as long as you have the weapons, you know, then you run the risk that they'll eventually be used. We've had several near misses, Cuban Missile Crisis, Taiwan Straits Crisis, Berlin Crisis. And we were doing a great job of sort of reducing nuclear risk. We built this whole system and we were actually doing better than people expected. But then once the Cold War ended, I think everyone moved on. I mean, if you were alive in the 1980s, that was one thing you that was a real deal. But now, you know, people think it's important, but they don't feel connected to it. When really in the past, people did quite a bit. We had quite a bit of success. And now we are being reminded what happens if you uh, sort of fall asleep at the wheel and that there's real danger. But uh, here's, I guess, what I'm having trouble understanding. Maybe you can help me out on this. Uh, so early on in this conflict, uh, President Biden made it very clear that he did not want this to become, and NATO said the same thing, right? Uh, he didn't right. want this to become a direct confrontation between the U.S. or or NATO and and Russia. Now, t the other day or today, you have the administration saying the aim uh, now is to see a weakened, militarily weakened yeah. Russia. Doesn't that yeah. doesn't that now? sort of fall into Vladimir Putin's playbook where he yes. is saying this has all along been about trying to diminish Russia. Doesn't that bring us that much closer now to a direct confrontation? Well, it doesn't help 
you know, I think everyone thinks it, but he said the quiet part out loud. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I hate to see the, I hope the war stops tomorrow and wish Russia withdraws. But as long as it has invaded another sovereign country, then its military assets are open, you know, game and according to the laws of war. And, uh, you know, you could certainly imagine a logic that goes, the more he spends those resources here and poorly, the less he'll be able to do elsewhere and the longer it's going to take him to get his act together if he gets it together. So I totally get the tactical objective, but you are 100% right. You don't want to feed that narrative. Um, But, you know, that's basically what everyone was doing anyway, I think. Jim Walsh, international security and nuclear weapons policy expert, uh, senior research associate, MIT. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Millions of people have now left Ukraine to escape the war. Many who are staying are taking big and small actions to help others around them. Oleksandra Modbichuk, director of a Kiev-based Center for Civil Liberties. Her organization has been focused on tracking which humanitarian corridors are open and safe for aid workers to transport supplies and, of course, for civilians to escape. Oleksandra is with us now from Kiev. Thank you so much for talking to us. So how many of those corridors have actually been opened and, and been utilized? Because at least from our perspective here, we, we keep hearing stories of, you know, Russia saying, OK, we'll have this one open and here's an agreement in place. And then they go back on their word. When we speak about humanitarian corridors, uh, who has to be opened according to the standard of International Committee of Red Cross, uh, I can say that for the whole period of from this uh, uh, large-scale uh, Russian invasion, Russia provides permission for only two such kind of humanitarian corridors to International Committee of Red Cross, one from Sumy and second from Berdyansk. All other humanitarian corridors, which were provided and negotiated uh, with the Ukrainian side and Russian side, uh, faced with a lot of risk and was uh, heavily uh, shelled uh, very regularly by Russian troops. That's why we have such more casualties among civilians. I I was going to say, I mean, how do you convince people to try to to flee in a corridor when they know, I presume, that the consequences could be very dire? Yes, it's a huge problem for local authorities uh, because uh, now we expected to have a battle in the east, in the Donetsk and Lugan regions, and local authorities asked people to evacuate it. But before this, we have this tragedy in Kramatorsk when Russians shelled the railway station where evacuation trainings are waiting, and five dozen people, among them several children, were died. And that's why people are afraid to evacuate. But to stay is also not a, not a solution. We saw what happened in Bucha, Matej, and Warsaw in Kiev region. So it's a huge risk to be occupied by Russian troops, and Russia used terror against civilians. Is there freedom of movement in many cases for people in the places that are occupied? I mean, if they wanted to try, and obviously, as we've just been discussing, it's not always safe to try to get out, but can they even, would they be allowed to by by the occupation forces? No, as we saw from practice, the people have no right to leave this territory. For example, when we speak about Kiev region, Russians don't provide opportunity to people uh, leave this area and they shelled civilian cars. And now there are, the international journalists uh, can see this uh, shelled car 
uh, where the, the, the families tried to escape but uh, were killed by Russian troops. I was reading an article, I believe it was the New York Times last week, that said that some people, uh, Ukrainians who left the country in the early days of the war, have decided to return. Is that the case? And is it to any uh, significant number? Yeah, we uh, have a number, but I couldn't provide you. I am I, afraid to be mistaken about, uh, of Ukrainians uh, who return. And I must admit that a lot of men are returned because before this uh, large um, scale Russian invasion, a lot of Ukrainians are work abroad in different countries. And now uh, they are not, uh, couldn't stay indifferent and they return to Ukraine in order to be with Ukrainian people in this dramatic time of history and to provide their own input into general struggle. Supplies. We've heard so much about shortages of certain types of medication, other types of things that are desperately needed. How are things on that uh, front? It depends on territory, because uh, when we speak about uh, uh, isolated uh, towns, they have uh, problems with medical and other humanitarian assistance. The bright example is Mariupol, because it's a military tactics of Russia how to quickly obtain control over the city. They deliberately uh, destroyed the critical uh, civil infrastructure, deprived people of uh, uh, electricity, water, light. They destroyed the residential buildings. They uh, move, They put people to be in basement for weeks uh, without medical and other kind of assistance and don't allow them to, to evacuate from the city. It's all military goal in order to provide enormous pain among civilian and civilians and stop the resistance of locals. And this tactics is prohibited by international humanitarian law. I'm curious, what did you do before the war? What were you, uh, what was your occupation? I'm a human rights defender. I've, I spent 20 years of my life to protect human rights. And uh, before this large Russia, scale Russian invasion, my organization, Center for Civil Liberties, we are working on two fronts. The first, we push Ukrainian authorities to provide democratic reforms and to build stable democratic institutions like independent judiciary, like effective police, etc. And second, for all these eight years, we have been documenting war crimes in Donbas and Crimea, which were temporarily occupied by Russia. Do you think that the Russians will be held accountable for the crimes we've seen since? We, I, I'm not predict a future. I am a people who try to create this future. And I tell you that we do our best and hundreds and hundreds of people in Ukraine, lawyers and human rights defenders do our best in order to see Putin in international criminal court in Hague. Oleksandra, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you. Oleksandra Matvichuk, director of the Kiev-based Center for Civil Liberties. We do hope you stay safe and we can stay in touch. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Lots of COVID news today. The vice president testing positive. No symptoms, uh, but isolating. New CDC data shows nearly 60% of the population in the U.S. has been exposed to COVID. Uh, that was by this past February. And the Biden administration has announced plans to nearly double the number of pharmacies that carry COVID antiviral pills. Now, this follows complaints from many people who are having trouble 
finding the pills. Dr. Richard Dang is president of the California Pharmacists Association and professor at the USC School of Pharmacy. Thanks for being with us. And, you know, we, we talked about this on the show the other week I, because I needed to get you one of the... You had to find these. Yeah. yeah, and it took quite a bit of time to track down a pharmacy here in L.A. that actually had the the Pfizer pill, and this was only a couple of weeks ago. And I remembered when that happened, the president saying, I don't know, a month or so earlier, how it was going to be widely available to anyone who needed it. I suspect it's very readily available to the vice president, not so much to a lot of other people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the supply of the medications was extremely limited, even with the plans for the widespread distribution. Um, and we we're seeing that in the pharmacies, we weren't able to order or request the medications to be stocked to provide to our patients. That has gotten a little bit better over the last few weeks. Uh, now, a lot of our area pharmacies in Los Angeles do have it in stock. Uh, but when the fir- program first rolled out, there was a very limited supply, and it, it didn't seem to be ready, readily available at all at that time. There's also been reporting, though, that a lot of it was sitting on shelves, not going anywhere. So were you guys asking for it, and then it wasn't getting to you, or were doctors hesitant to prescribe it for some reason? A little bit of everything. We were asking for it, and we weren't getting it. And now that we did receive it, over the last two weeks, we've, we've been starting to get more reliable inventory. Uh, we are seeing less demand. So we're not seeing prescriptions coming in. Patients aren't asking for it. So I think it's everything that you mentioned, um, just some prescriber hesitancy and just lack of awareness that this medication is available out there. And I, and I guess I find that really incredible because we're in, like, what, the beginning of the third year of the pandemic. They've been talking about these antiviral pills months before they were given emergency authorization, months after they were. And yet you're right. I mean, there are so many doctors who don't seem to either know they exist or know so little about it because they're not educated about it, that they're reluctant to prescribe it. And I'm having a difficult time understanding why that's the case. Yeah, I think some of it is just that, you know, the early messaging was that it's so scarce, you know, be really picky about who you're prescribing it to. And now that we're starting to see some increased supply, uh, you know, we have to re-educate our providers that this is something that's there, that, you know, the pharmacies are now carrying it. Um, and it is something that most patients will be, be should benefit from if they have a COVID positive diagnosis and they're symptomatic. Could some of the doctors be a little hesitant because of the, the various drug interactions and, and maybe they're not going down the whole list and saying, OK, well, let's take you off of this for a week, put you on the Pfizer, put you back on this. And they just go, OK, uh, go home and, and hydrate. Certainly. I think that could be part of the consideration. There are some extra requirements to monitor for drug-drug interactions. But I think overall, the the benefits of the medication should outweigh that for most individuals. Um, And and, and they really should reconsider that and evaluate their patients completely uh, on a one-by-one basis instead of making the overall decision to just not prescribe it to anybody. All right. So again, as we mentioned, the uh... Vice President, you know, she uh, has, of course, now been diagnosed with uh, COVID, although she has no no symptoms. And they're saying if she has symptoms, she'll get the antivirals. In her case, I'm guessing the, the head of Pfizer will deliver it to her in a platter. What should the average person in Los Angeles do if they can't find it? Yeah, in Los Angeles, one of the uh, first places that individuals should go to is our county, uh, county Department of Public Health. The LA County Department of Public Health has a telehealth service available. Ah, wait, I'm going to stop. Wait, wait, I'll stop you on that because I did that. <laughs> that uh-huh. for you. I did that two <laughs> weeks ago, and I went through one, two, three, four, six different pharmacies on that list who, when I called, said, no, we don't have any. And I finally found one, And but I called 
only the ones on the county list. Yes, absolutely. And I agree. Two weeks ago, we didn't have it. Um, and I just checked with a lot of pharmacies this morning and I was told we have it. It's sitting on the shelves and we're just waiting for people to come in with prescriptions. Dr. Richard Dang, president of the California Pharmacists Association, professor USC School of Pharmacy. See, you just bad time. It's to all get timing COVID for you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all timing. The legacy of slavery still looms over the U.S. Harvard University, one of many institutions reckoning with its past connections to slavery. It's committing $100 million to study slavery and work with descendants of black and Native American people enslaved at the school. This comes as momentum builds for reparations here in California and across the country. With us is Carissa Chen, Rhodes Scholar, who spent two years as an undergrad at Harvard tracing the descendants of enslaved people connected to the school. Carissa, thanks for being with us. Take us through some of that work first off, uh, what you found and, and some of the history here. Thank you. So I started working on this research two years ago, looking for slave descendants connected to Harvard. I found 121 slave names of people who had Harvard had profited from. And then from there, I spent hours working through the archives, looking through church records, obituaries, marriage licenses, trying to find living slave descendants. One of the living slave descendants I found is here with us today, Roberta Wolf. And her history uh, includes her ancestor, Cuba Vassal, who was a slave who, of the Royal family whose fortune founded Harvard Law School. I was going to ask, how did uh, the university get enriched by this? So there are multiple connections Harvard has with its ties to slavery. So enslaved people actually lived in Harvard dorms. At least we have a record of one sleeping in a Harvard bed. Harvard University presidents, fellows, overseers, faculty members, and students owned slaves. In the 19th century, one third of all private donations came from families whose fortunes were based off the slave trade. And even to the you know, 20th century, there are Harvard professors who are actively involved in supporting eugenics and supporting white supremacy movements. Do you think the numbers you found are probably an undercount? I mean, you had to do all this work to, to find what you did find, but there, there has to be more. There are countless more. So I was able to find 50 living descendants. Um, Roberta Wolf, who's joining us today, was also part of this movement to try and search through her history and build an ancestry tree. But Roberta's story is one that also reflects the over 50,000 descendants that we imagine can exist today. So there are thousands of unfound living slave descendants who are connected to Harvard University and who should be a part of this conversation about what Harvard and what American universities today owe. Uh, Chris, uh, you say that uh, Roberta is with you now? Yes, Roberta is here with me. Um, for context, Roberta was part of the effort of finding her own history. So for hours and for many, many evenings, she spent countless um, amounts of time trying to build this incredible ancestry tree where she was trying to figure out her relatives, trying to understand her past. One of the people she found was Cuba Vassal, who was an enslaved person which Harvard profited from. And Roberta and I have met multiple times over the summer. Um, at the, over the summer, we went through Harvard Yard looking for the grave of one of her ancestors. Huh. Roberta, um, just going to introduce you here now. Uh, Roberta, how are you? Roberta, I think you're. I think you're muted, Roberta. Okay, Roberta, uh, unmute. <laughs> are you there, Roberta? Okay, I'm here. Can you oh, you hear are. Me now? Yeah, yes, we we, we, we got can. you. Okay. So, so hi, so, hi. Welcome to the program. So, tell us a little bit about. Uh, your reaction to all of this and, and briefly your own journey. My journey started um, 2015, like Carissa said, 
searching for lost or missing relatives. And um, what happened is that we ended up being contacted by Jim Shea from the Henry Longfellow House. And Jim Shea was the one that told me that I was related. I was the fourth or fifth great granddaughter of Dobby Vassal. So he invited me to the house. We searched and we searched and he helped me. All the employees helped me look for my family members. And I'm so happy that I was able to find just missing relatives. That was my goal in life. And it's a great feeling to know that I was able to find my lost and missing relatives. What do you think about what the school is now doing in terms of, you know, how they profited off of enslaved people and the the thought of, of what you think that they should be doing? Well, I hope that with all that's going on with the hundred million, that they will turn around and help other children, underprivileged children, and to get them through college, help them and not just do this to any other any other family members or any other blacks, slaves, or any other people of color or anyone. I just hope that they make it right. Uh, Carissa, you're still with us, yes? Uh, yes, I'm still here. Yeah, I, because I want to be uh, clear for listeners that, that it isn't just Harvard uh, that has this uh, uh, unfortunate history. Uh, a number of other Ivy League schools had very similar backgrounds and benefited financially from slavery, did they not? Yes. Yeah. So um, part of the research that I looked at was also looking at all other American universities. So I already have some of the slave names of universities like Yale, um, Dartmouth, um, College of William and Mary, Georgetown, Washington and Lee, um, and Brown University. There are countless other universities with ties to slavery. But starting with those slave names, hopefully we can find more living slave descendants. And this is not just a Harvard-specific problem. Universities across America profited from slavery for generations and for years. And so this is just the beginning of something that we hope other universities can also begin doing. And do you think with, with the, at least making this kind of a headline or at least this much money going towards the work that Harvard can kind of set the tone and, and the others will follow? I hope so. And I hope we can commit even more, like uh, as American universities across the country can commit even more and continue to search for living descendants and start grappling with their histories. Roberta, were you genuinely shocked by the things you learned or did you sort of always kind of guess at some of this history, especially vis-a-vis yourself and your own family, and and now you've just sort of uh, verified what you already thought? Actually, I was shocked. I never, ever knew. Growing up in the North, I never knew the families never talked or spoke about slavery or anything. So I never was aware of it until I was an adult. But doing the ancestry research, that's what opened my eyes. And how does it feel to you now with your eyes open? I'm astounded. I'm just like overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. But I'm so happy that, that I hope this never, ever happens again to any other family members or anyone. Roberta, Carissa, thank you so much for speaking to us. That's In Depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow 